electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast Countdown to CPI, ahead of the Fed decision, this is the most important data point on the street's radar. We'll break down what happens if the number is too hot, too cold, or just right. Plus, Carvana races higher on an upgrade from Piper Sandler. The analyst believes the stock could double from here. But hold on. One of our traders says the debt market is telling a very different story. And later, a big bounce in biotech. The options action on Starbucks and Disney makes peace with a big, big-time activist investor. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Cordy Garcia, Guy Nami, and Karen Feinerman. And we start off with a countdown to tomorrow's big CPI report. Economists expecting a sharp slowdown in inflation in August as energy prices continue to come down. Prices overall expected to decline on a month-to-month basis. But take a look at this. Shares of Apple surging nearly 4% today, adding almost $100 billion to its market cap. Now think about this. Ahead of a key piece of data, the biggest company in the United States, a company deeply impacted potentially by supply chain snarls, enterprise spending, the health of the consumer, it makes a major move higher. So does Apple's rise today signal to investors that the markets have accepted that the Fed is going to do the rest of the year? And are they okay with it? Tim, if you're not too busy taking a call, well, I'll it off I mean, you. somebody was signaling something. <laughs> and uh, Steve's in trouble for that one. But I'm in trouble, as I should be. And, and I, I guess, you know, the signal from Apple is that, uh, first of all, I think the release of the iPhone 14 and the Pro Max, we have some data that's actually saying that they're ahead of where they were in the last release here. I was pointing out last week that I thought Apple's underperformance to the market might be a, a you know, change in character and watch out for that. It had underperformed the market from that move lower by 3 or 4%. It looks like it made a lot of this back up today. Uh, I'm just shocked that people now believe that tomorrow's CPI number, which we've been talking about for a week, will probably show headline is significantly better. Gas is down 90 straight days. Yes, you're going to get a lower headline print. But um, the fact that the core will remain sticky, that this labor market, I just think we were so oversold. And remember, markets have rallied the day last week when Powell, on Tuesday of last week, reiterated this this commitment to higher rates for longer. And and we're up almost 6% on the S&P from that intraday low. That's a massive move from oversold conditions. So I think we will see that number tomorrow. I just find it interesting that everybody's saying, okay, inflation's now. The worst of it's in the rearview mirror and tailwind and going into next year. This is the trend that we live. Mm-hmm. And, and we're back to this sense that the Fed is not really going to stick to where they are. There is no pivot coming. Uh, and tomorrow's number will be excellent on a headline um, on a relative basis. But uh, again, I don't think that's the answer. Well, maybe the new pivot is just the Fed sticking to the course and that may be a little less hawkish is a new pivot here, Courtney. And that it certainly feels like the market is accepting the fact that we're going to go 75 or 50 minimum this up- upcoming meeting and then maybe 50 or 25 after that in some sort of variation. And people are OK with that. Should they be? Yeah, and I think at this point, too, right, I mean, the Fed, if we were talking last year, everyone knew inflation was coming, and the Fed was saying, oh, don't worry about it, inflation's temporary, and we all knew they were wrong there, and they were clearly behind the eight ball, where it's going to take more data than is out there right now for them to change their tune, because they can't be wrong on this twice, but they may be behind the eight ball again. I think that's ultimately what a lot of people are seeing right now, is we are starting to see inflation coming down. Even things like consumers' expectations of inflation is coming down, which I think is interesting, because that is one of the points that the 
Fed noted several months ago sure. that they need to see that come down, and it is, in fact, coming down. So is that going to make them pivot here in the next two weeks? Likely not. But when we're talking early next year, there are signs it's coming down. So I think that's what people are hopeful to see. Yeah, price stability, right? That's what the Fed wants to achieve, and it looks like it is actually happening, guys. So is Apple really... I mean, when you're when you're looking at the market and thinking which direction is the market going to go to year end, is Apple telling us something at this point? Tim says it all the time. I mean, Apple becomes one of these defensive plays for people for, you know, if that makes sense or not. I mean, that's just the reality. And technically, if you if you look at it, we made that sort of 129 low, 172 ish high recently. So the move down to 150, one and a half, 152, wherever we bottomed out makes sense. 50 percent retracement. I thought we'd print 150. We didn't, but we got close. So this move, I guess, makes sense. It's a little overextended to me, but, you know, it's funny you say price stability. I know you do that just to wind me up, and you're successful yet once again, but there is absolutely no price stability in the bond market, which continues to trade like $150 million biotech stock. So, and I'm with Tim on this one. I've said it, and I believe this. That 9.1 number we saw a couple months ago, hopefully, and I think that will be the high print for quite some time, but it might be peak, but I've said a number of times the other PEs, pesky and persistent, are here mm-hmm. to stay. And I don't think they can afford to pivot or pause or whatever P word you want to use. You can, you can be in the camp, though, where you think the Fed doesn't necessarily have things under control. But we are in a scenario, at <clears> least <throat> for now, where markets have the leeway to go higher, Karen. And maybe that's where, we, that's where investors think we are sort of generally here where we sort of know what the Fed's path is. And so we can have this sort of interest rate backdrop. Consumers are feeling a little bit better um, about inflation and future expectations for inflation. So maybe maybe into year end with seasonality, we can lift. It's possible. I mean, anything is possible. I think the good thing about the Fed tightening is that the market really believes the Fed's going to tighten a lot. And so I think that that's sort of... Um, one uncertainty that isn't there right now. And I, I, I really think the path for a long time will be tightened. There's no way that they just declare, we get one cool number and they say, okay, that's great. We're good to, we're good to you know, ease off. I don't think that's happening at all. But the market expects that, so that's good. But we're almost, we're about three or four weeks away from getting earnings again. We had a couple tonight we'll, we'll touch on, but I think that's going to start to matter to see how companies are weathering this um, volatility, the supply chain issues, I think, are easing, and that's deflationary, so that's good. But I think that we're going to go back again to fundamentals. And it seemed like from the companies we've heard that have had quarters that don't end, uh, that don't report in in, uh, July, for example, for the second quarter that report a little later, they've been talking about things picking up during this third quarter that we're near finishing. So I think that's a positive. Um, I, I think until we have clarity from earnings, I don't know, the market could go either way. Maybe it's maybe some some excitement about maybe Ukraine uh, conflict is going a little better. Uh, Ukraine is uh, shipping more grain. I don't know. Maybe that's part of what what's keeping this rally afloat. Well, yeah. And, and well, at least what's interesting, Karen, is that I think you've got a case here where the market is pricing in higher rates and OK with it right now. So mm-hmm. f- today we got to a fresh high in the two year note. Yeah. We, we, you know, 15 year high, uh, close to 360. The 10 year is, is higher. Actually, the curve was even a little bit steeper. If you look at Fed funds, we actually kicked over 4 percent out in April. So, again, the Fed fund futures, which are trying to measure where the Fed is going to be right now, the highest point uh, in the future is out in April, where we're at about 401, 402. First time we got over 4 percent. So the market is pricing that in. But I agree 
state that earnings are the next measuring stick. And I think setting up uh, into third quarter earnings right now, the bar is actually higher than it was going into the oh, second really? quarter. Perversely, right, in terms of expectations. We, hmm. we, I think we were all pleasantly surprised by the second quarter. I think we've pushed out uh, a lot of at least some of the demand pushback. We, right. we had some margin pressure. We heard about inflation. We heard about the dollar. By the way, dollar 3% weaker over the last couple of days. European markets have actually been on fire and outperforming our markets over here, again, as their central bank becomes a little bit more involved. But 220 on S&P earnings next year. Again, we Guy does this. We, we play this game all the time. What multiple do you right. want to put on the S&P? And at 220, in a world where the historical average for the S&P for the last 15 years, not during a crisis, not during inflation, is 15.8. You know, that's not terribly exciting in terms of in terms. It's actually really quite depressing where this could go in terms of the S&P. Facts that's actually saying that the bar has been lowered on third quarter earnings and that um, analysts have been cutting their earnings growth estimates by five and a half percent so far for the third quarter, which is the biggest drop in the series of data that Facts has collected since 2010. So maybe this is actually good in that. You know, what analysts are expecting, it's sort of coming down, that, that the gap is sort of converging yes. in terms of the expectations and what companies can deliver. So maybe that sets up well. Yeah, actually, I, I saw the same note yeah. here, yeah, which expectations have come down the most since they did right around the, when the pandemic happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think, hopefully going to be one of those things where we lower the bar and it's going to make it that much easier for companies to report better. But we haven't seen that. I think Tim brings up a good point. Companies, we thought that this quarter, that was going to be what happens. This was going to be that horrible quarter. Companies were going to come out, show the deterioration. It didn't happen. So I think if that continues to happen here, it does put us, it put us in a good position going into the new year. So, Guy, hmm. do things line Hi, up? Hi, Guy. You're going to be gone for a while, Hi. so I'm going to miss that. Yeah. Hi, Mel. Just random greeting in the middle of the show. Um, do we line up well for a seasonal bounce? Putting well, aside your feelings you about the question. Fed, putting aside uh, you know, your belief that the Fed has completely lost control of the situation, that they've done a disservice to the American people, et cetera, et cetera. Putting that all aside. <laughs> Do does. you pay your electric bills by any chance? I think you. I know you do because I know you. You you're one, you pay them ahead of time. Why do I mention that? Because what made an all-time high today? Con Edison made an all-time high. Mm. All the people on the East Coast are familiar. XLU made an all-time high today. That's the utilities ETF. Explain that one to me. That to me does not suggest. Um, I, I don't know. It just feels funny when you have a utilities making all-time high in an environment like we find ourselves in. That's a bit of a warning sign. One. Guess what else was higher today? I know you know the answer to this. The VIX was higher today. Again, one-off, not a big deal, just something to keep in mind. So I think what the market is saying, what Bitcoin is saying to a certain extent is the Fed's going to pause, pivot again, whatever the word is, because these numbers are going to come in cooler than expected, and we want to front-run that. I just think that's misguided, in my opinion. All right. Well, Credit Suisse is forecasting that inflation will collapse over the next 12 to 18 months. Jonathan Golub is behind the call. He's the firm's chief U.S. equity strategist. Jonathan, great to speak with you. Good to see you. Just on a mathematical basis, I mean, once we get once we start lapping and and we're lapping easier comparisons, it's going to look a lot better year on year. John, is that what you mean by inflation collapsing? Well, it's it's even more than that. If you look at like the tips break evens, they're predicting that we have sub 2% um, CPI at this time next year. Economists are forecasting um, something that's more like two and a quarter um, by the end of next year. And, and how, why? And it's not, this isn't a Credit Suisse call. This is actually what's being priced into the market broadly. And if you look at it in pieces, because calculating CPI is a mechanical exercise, you know, um, goods prices. Um, goods inflation peaked in March, 
Um, they've been falling for six months now. Oil prices, I mean, every one of us sees when we go to, um, you know, the gas station that the price of gasoline is down and oil is down. And we see it even with, uh, with food. So, you know, it really is showing up in the data um, already. And, and that's a really big potential positive. Jonathan, it's Tim. So getting back to calculations and data, and we just messed around for three seconds about the S&P and what multiple it trades at. But, but you don't need to tell me necessarily the multiple, but, but should the S&P be trading above or in line or lower than its historical average in this environment? And I'm kind of pinning you in, but uh, I'm just curious because rates are now, we talk about the short end of the curve. We're going to be over 4% on Fed funds, I believe, at some point where we haven't been in forever. So the calculation of rates in, in, in your model the, the analyst's model, not necessarily yours. Talk to us about where we should be relative to history. Yeah, you know, you're raising a great point. The, the whole issue on valuations is, is really about the discount rate. And it's not what Fed funds are, what a 10-year bond yield is, but what is the cost of corporate borrowing? And even though rates are up a lot, um, the cost of corporate borrowing is still, you know, pretty reasonable. And, and there's really two parts of that. I mean, the first thing is, is that the underlying 10-year bond yield, I mean, it's up a ton, you know, in, in the last, you know, six months to a year. But if you compare this to the last 30 or 40 years, I mean, you're, you're looking at historical valuations. I mean, you know, when, when, when you started out in the business, where was a 10-year bond? 8% or something <laughs> like that? Yeah. You don't even remember interest rates like that. So I think that uh, the valuations on the market are at, you know, somewhere between fair and, and inexpensive right now, uh, meaning that there's more upside from, from PE multiples. Hey, Jonathan, it's Courtney here, and just, you know, thanks for joining us. Um, actually, I really like to see your optimism here when it comes to CPI coming down, um, but I am curious. So we're seeing data coming, showing that inflation's coming down. I do agree with that. But at a certain point in time, I think there needs to be more data for the Fed to really start to back away from what they're doing. So what is the catalyst going to be, or how much data we, do we really need to see before they're able to get there? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that that's one of the real challenges. I think this is the greatest um, divide between forecasted inflation one year in the future and current inflation. Um, you know, we, we're even with the CPI report coming out tomorrow, expectations are it's more than 8%. If you would have told any of us a year or two ago that we'd have 8% inflation, we wouldn't believe it. We would think that that's unthinkable. Um, so the Fed is not going to simply look at forecasted inflation and say, oh, I'm done. You know, and so they're going to need to see confirmation. But the market believes that come the first quarter, if we continue to go on this glide path where, where things renormalize, that they're going to start to either pause or signal that they might pause. And if they do that, the stock market wants to move ahead of it. The stock market's really going to take off. Jonathan, great to get your thoughts. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Jonathan Golub of Credit Suisse. Uh, Karen, you buy what Jonathan's selling. I mean, it's true. It, on a relative basis, on a historical basis, it's still cheap to access the capital markets. But if you're a company who really needs the money, it's that, that difference in expense can mean a lot in this kind of environment where growth is not as easy as during a zero interest rate sort of environment. Right. And so maybe there's a bifurcated market then. Those who don't need to raise money, they're in great shape. Those who do, it's harder, even with, you know, rates 
somewhat higher, which they are, but also credit markets are just a little less secure than they were. So it's a bold call by him. I kind of like that he's that he's kind of going out on a limb. But I think I'm more in the camp where they are going to keep being hawkish, maybe well beyond the time they need to be. And so I think that's going to be a while from now. So the question is, how far of a forward looking mechanism is the market? If it's six months, I think we're still going to be tightening. But if he's right, in six months they're, they're neutral, then I, I do think the market will go higher. All right. Coming up, shares of Peloton giving up early gains after announcing a leadership change after hours. We're digging into what's behind the move next. Plus, we're diving into the biotech trade as President Biden launches another step in his cancer moonshot initiative. So which companies could benefit from the new plan? we got the details straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Peloton dropping after hours after the company announced a change in leadership. Founder John Foley stepping down as executive chair effective immediately. He gave up the CEO spot in February. The company's chief legal officer will also step down in October. The stock jumped 7 percent during regular trading session, uh, is now down almost 2 percent. Let's bring in Simeon Siegel of BMO Capital on the fast line. Simeon, great to have you with us. What do you think this says about the current CEO, Barry McCarthy's progress and in, in turning the company around, if anything? Hey, great to, uh, to be back. So I, I think you just said it. I think that at the end of the day, the current CEO is Barry McCarthy. I think the company has had their turnover in terms of management. And I think at the end of the day, this makes sense. And listen, to, to his credit, John Foley created a fantastic community, created a product that we will be talking about for a long time. And I think this is his opportunity to move on and do something else. 
Hey, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Do you read anything into his departure that could mean that the company is up for sale? Or do you think McCarthy still has so much work to do that not going to be sellable for a while? I think what's interesting is you look at the business, it's still called a, a several billion dollar market cap. I mean, this is, is a business that is not as uh, as disrupted or, or as in trouble, let's say, as maybe we all talk about simply from a zero to four perspective. So I think what Barry has been doing, he's been cutting the cost, he's been making the business healthier. And I think he had been at least vocal about the fact that he has no intention of selling. I think that should not change from this. I think right now we haven't heard from John Foley in a long time. We've been hearing a lot from Barry McCarthy. So from where we sit, I think at the end of the day, this seems like a normal progression of movement. I think what the company needs to do is they need to decide, do they want to be bigger, which is expensive, or do they want to be its current size and be profitable? There's a lot of focus, a lot of talk on free cash flow. That's a different type of a conversation than convincing someone to pick you up for all the growth ahead. Do they really have the option? Do they have those, those options in front of them? I mean, to get bigger, don't they have to sell themselves? Yeah, listen, I think that at the end of the day, they're, they should bear hug their brand loyalists. I think they should internalize. They have a very big business. Churn is going up, but they're able to raise price. And I think that if they focus on that business, they have a beautiful, very recurring monthly spend. But that doesn't mean that they can add members ad infinitum, and they might not be able to add members really much further than where we are right now. I think that we, we do have to ask, what is the cost of a new member? And the cost of a new member is not simply the cost of equipment, which is now outsourced. The cost of a new member is the marketing that goes along with it. I think it's an interesting question about getting to free cash flow positive. You can get to free cash flow positive because you're defensive, or you can get there via growth. I think I'm more in the, in the, the camp that it's the defensive approach. Do you have a sell rating on Peloton, Simeon? We have an underperform, so the equivalent. Yep. Okay. Thanks for phoning in. We do appreciate it. You bet. Simeon Siegel. Guy, what do you think of Peloton here? Eddie Merckx could be CEO with Greg LeMond, and it's going lower. You can Google that in a commercial break. That hasn't capitulated (laughs) to the downside, in my opinion. I mean, this move tells you all you need to know. The knee jerk was higher, and then the market says, wait a second, nothing's really changed. So I don't think we've seen the bottom yet, unfortunately. Now, I know there are a lot of Peloton fans on this panel, but Mm. putting that aside, Karen, in an environment where consumers might be looking to trim expenses here or there, I don't know, what is it, $40 a month at this point? Yeah, I agree. It's a big spend. And when we talk about, you know, the streaming services and for, you know, for for viewing, people are thinking, what can I cut? And one thing about churn, he said, uh, Simeon mentioned ticking up. But one other metric that I thought was interesting last time I looked at their financials, the number of rides per user was going down. And that, to me, is a forerunner of future churn going up as people use it less as a bike and, you know, more as, what do they say, a, uh, a hanger. That had been a huge tenet of the of the bull case that people were so engaged in the platform and, and the engagement is waning. And, and so when you're down to, let's say, one ride a week, I'm not. You're not that engaged. Right. And, you're not that engaged. And I'm not speaking from personal. No, actually, I am. <laughs> then you might decide to actually cut cut the cord, so to speak, on that. Yeah. And, and look, during COVID, Guy was outrunning Greg LeMond in the Alps. And it was very <laughs> impressive. But but the reality is when you have other options, and right. we have a lot of other options. And, and you can also, the, the flip side of that is watching Equinox and some of the gyms start to raise their prices yep. again, which means they are more confident or people are coming back. All right. We've got an earnings alert on Oracle. Shares of the company higher now, despite reporting that currency headwinds took a toll on its top and bottom lines. Frank Holland has been listening in on that call. 
Frank, what's the latest? Hey there, Melissa. Listening to the call right now, shares rising during the call as Oracle laid out some very optimistic guidance for the current quarter, also raised its forecast for cloud growth from 30% to over 30%. But for this quarter, currency impact is certainly the story after the EPS miss. That we've got to remember, the dollar gained almost 7% during this company's fiscal quarter. CEO Safra Katz said that hit EPS by $0.08, cents, and you got to remember, it missed on EPS this quarter by $0.04. Cents. You can do the math right there. Oracle gets about 44% of revenue from Europe, Middle East, and Asia. Still, better than expected results in quite a few key metrics. Cloud services and license support, where Oracle gets about three-quarters of revenue, that beat expectations. Services and, and short-term deferred revenue beat expectations as well. This is also the first quarter revenues from that $28 billion Cerner acquisition are included in results. Kat saying Cerner reported its best quarter of revenue and going forward will provide growth to both revenue and EPS, as well as long-term cost savings. Back over to you. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland with the latest on that. Um, Oracle, it's not expensive, Courtney, but does that, does that mean that you want to own it? Yeah, yeah, it's really, especially compared to a lot of its competitors, it's not that expensive. It trades at, what, uh, 14 mm-hmm. times forward earnings, which really isn't bad compared to the markets. I think one of my biggest problems with Oracle, though, is the amount of debt that they hold on their balance sheet. I mean, they have about $56 billion net debt, and that's not even including their recent acquisitions, so it's probably going to be higher than that. So it's not something I'm going to jump in with two feet. I do think it's, it has some pretty positive results here, uh, but it's not something I'm jumping into at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Stephanie Link on the OT last mm. hour, Guy was saying that, you know, if she were looking Looking at other legacy tech players, there are a lot of other better options than an Oracle. Probably an IBM is probably mm-hmm. one, given exactly. the fact that Red Hat's now mm-hmm. fully integrated. Yeah, see, I pay attention. It's the cheapest thing you can do, Melms. And by the way, doing the show a long time, that's the first time ever that Eddie Merckx was mentioned, by the way. Again, Google it in the commercial break. I like Oracle here. Uh, Courtney's right. 14 times next year's number. Probably cheaper because they will beat those numbers, I think. Cerner now fully integrated, and 30% of their revenues now are in the cloud, which should mean they get a higher multiple. So, you know, this was a $109 stock, I think, in the fall. I'm not suggesting it gets back there, but I think this is a mid 80s stock pretty easy from here. I think these are great numbers. And again, when you got a cloud guide that was better than 30%, again, they had already guided for fiscal 23 at around 30 on cloud. They're going well above that in constant currency and, and with the stronger dollar. Uh, that five-year deal also with AT&T is a big deal for them. And so um, when you're looking for companies in this environment that are free cash flow generators, even with a big debt load, but these, th- there's no question that the model transition for Oracle is very interesting. And I th- this is the kind of a, of a company that pays you dividends here. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Biden-backed biotech. New support coming for the space. So which companies will feel the love? The traders break it down next. Plus, reaching Carvana. Analysts enlightened on the used car stock. And that's sending shares to the clouds. We'll meditate on that one next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. President Biden signing an executive order today that boosts U.S. biotech production. The goals listed include growing biomanufacturing, expanding the market for bio-based products, and increasing R&D. This is the biotech ETF. IBB has gained 16 percent over the last three months. For more on what this could mean for the space, let's bring in Oppenheimer's Jared Holtz. He's the firm's healthcare sector specialist. Jared, always good to see you. You too. Thank you. Um, when you heard the announcement and you heard what it's supposed to boost this initiative, um, which stocks did you think of immediately? Well, I kind of turned to the life sciences and diagnostic space first, just given their involvement with bioproduction, bioprocessing, some of the things that the initiative looks to um, kind of meet, at least initially. Um, so TMO, Danaher, Agilent, um, that kind of grouping of stocks, the large life science tool space, I thought would probably be the one that investors would look to first. And then maybe secondarily, pharma and biotech is kind of a derivative. How do you think about what a boost to these particular subsectors of biotech means? I mean, do you think it's in the form of a tax break, of a one-time grant? I'm just wondering, because if they're manufacturing or if their facilities are overseas, this could actually be inflationary for them, and so a cost to them ultimately. Right. I think what, what the administration is trying to do is bringing some of this business back to the U.S. Now, most of the biotech industry is actually based here, the majority. Pharma obviously has, um, you know, a big presence internationally, Europe and Asia. Um, but I think what this is trying to do is trying to bring jobs back, obviously. And it's just trying to, I think, meet some of the demand that's here. Like there, there are a lot of personnel here that can probably benefit from more of the work being done in the U.S. So we'll see, but it's very unclear right now from this, from the plan that we've seen, um, whether this is gonna be a one-time or a, a tax grant. The, the money in terms of like how it's been earmarked is not very clear as of yet. Jared, it's Tim. So it, big pictures, you look at the sector, a uh, you know, big week last week for Regeneron in their ILEA drug and at least the cash flow generation coming out of the sector and, and really the balance sheets across some of the biggest cap biotech companies out there. So uh, do you like those companies here? At times, people have been concerned that a lot of these companies are one bad acquisition because of pipeline issues, et cetera. And in fact, they've actually pushed back on them. It seems like this chart can go higher. It seems like these companies in this environment really are best of breed. Yeah, Tim, I think Regeneron, I mean, a, a very nice move on, on the back of the ILEA data last week. The entire category has felt better. Um, IBB and the XBI have both, you know, had a pretty good two to three month run after going um, below d the depths we thought would even be possible at the beginning of the year. Um, so I think when you kind of pair up Regeneron and you look at some of the other data that's come out of the space, El Nylum, Corona, you've had some like pretty big or high profile clinical data sets that have all lined up pretty well. And I think in totality, that's been a major boost for the space. Um, and what investors are kind of relying on if they're putting money to work here to continue. Jared, good to see you. Thanks. Thank you. Jared Holtz. Courtney, you like biotech? I do. Actually, I think this is what the environment right now where these are going to have companies that generally have good cash flow. They have really good um, pricing power, too. And that's exactly what you want in this kind of like slowing growth um, rate environment right now. And so I think these are the exact kind of companies you want to be in. Guy. Amgen got whacked today on the Bristol-Myers news about their plaque psoriasis drug, which competes with Amgen's drug. But I think it's too much. I think people sort of uh, sold first, asked questions later. I think they will rue the day they did that. So 
I think this sell-off in Amgen is an opportunity. Tim nailed Regeneron. I mean, that stock went from 550 to 7 and change, pulled back a bit. But to me, Amgen sticks out on valuation. Yeah, I, I'd like Regeneron here, but I think the, the market's had a really big move there. You know, back to Gilead. I mean, I think, again, you have a case where some of these companies who are building at least a portfolio in their case in, in, in the cancer drugs are very exciting. And I think people are just worried about the cash piles here. But I think those are the things you should be chasing here. All right. Coming up, smells like teen spirit. Oh, wait. We're talking Carvana, not Oh, Carvana. oh, oh. I was going to be really cool. are rocking out on that stock next. Plus, we are sipping on Starbucks ahead of the company's investor day tomorrow. So what is brewing up in options land? The decap details when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Carvana topping the tape today, surging 15.5% after Piper Sandler upgraded the stock to an overweight. The analyst acknowledging the drop in used car prices across the country, but still says Carvana is, quote, grossly undervalued and deserves an upgrade. He added that the stock could double from here. Carvana is down 80 plus percent this year. Now, Karen, I know you read the note. You thought it was an interesting note, but you're also looking at a chart Mm -hmm. of one of the tranches of debt that Carvana has. What does that tell you? Right. So this is the closest in maturity, which is a bond that matures in 2025. And I think it's a uh, five and five eighths coupon. It's trading at 75 cents on the dollar. So that's a 16 percent yield to maturity in 2025. Not 16 percent overall, 16 percent every year. That's this is a junk rated piece of paper. That's telling you there's some real concern about the business. Just one other quirky thing of note. They do have some 10 and a quarter percent debt that trades better, trades higher. And the reason it trades higher is they, they got to take that paper out. It's way too expensive. It's twice as much uh, practically as any of their other debt in terms of interest expense. One other thing, you know, there's a giant short interest here. So I wouldn't be short this thing, but I also wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be short because who knows in a squeeze. I don't want to get involved in that. But to me, it's a bold call. He provides you all the tools to see how he tinkers with the model. He's expecting big, you know, EBITDA margins, good EBITDA margins. They hang on to market share um, and that the used car market hangs in there and a weighted average cost of capital that's high. But I think it could be higher, meaning a lower uh, a lower target rate. But it's an interesting call. Bold. I thought it, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was bold for the analyst to come up with the projection out to 2035 in terms of what Carvana needs to hit in U.S. market share. It seemed, I mean, 2025 a seems a long way off. 2035 seems, well, 10 years longer. <laughs> but 8% is the number <laughs> that it has to hit. Um, Guy, I'm, he says ultimately, you know, he runs through all the different scenarios and investors should own some Carvana. What do you say? I'll have a walker in 2035, if I'm lucky, <laughs> number one. And listen, I'll play the math game. I actually took math one day in college. And, you know, if this stock were to go to 80 from here, that's effectively double. It would still be down, Melms, 77% from the all-time high it made this time last year. So we've seen things like that happen in the market we find ourselves in. So I sort of dig this call. I think Carvana has issues. And... This move to the downside illustrates that. And to a certain extent, it's just a financing company. But 
If you want to play stock market, we've seen it before. I sort of like the call. Um, it could get those levels and still be a distressed stock. Well, I think we have to address what's going on in the used car market, too, because you're down 4% in August, but you're down 11% from the highs. And if you read some of these insider newsletters and whatnot, there, someone mentioned like a, a downward, like a vortex downward in terms of what's going on with used car prices, but where they could eventually go to. And so, you know, that to me is the dynamic here for a company that burned through 10 bucks a share of, of cash in 2022, which was their best year ever. Uh, they're not going to grow like this next year. And in fact, if you look at growth projected over the next couple of years with possibly the headwinds of a falling used car market. We're talking about uh, 15 to 20 percent growth just doesn't do it. And, and to me, with that kind of a debt load, that's exactly where Karen's seeing these bonds and what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think the fact that you had a note like this where they had to come out and first preface it, like we know that the car prices are going down. We know that rates are up. We know that there's a real possibility of bankruptcy, but it's down 80% this year, so it could still go higher. Like, yes, maybe in the short term, and I think that's that's Guy's point here is we could see that happen. But on the fundamentals of it, you know, I can't back it for that sense. So unless you're you're doing this as a trade that it's just so far down, it's got a bar, low, to bar, low bar. But otherwise, yeah, I wouldn't touch that. Karen, just quickly, if you extrapolate this vortex of pricing in the used car market to the new car market, because oftentimes they are linked, um, what does that tell you about GM or Ford? Uh, it's not great for them, for sure. I mean, maybe with the IFA, the, um, they'll get some boost from tax credits, but um, it's, it's not great because these high margin, these high ticket price cars are their highest margin items, and we hate to see compression there because that just... That's bad for margins. The stock finally got over 40, which was nice. Coming up, calling all Starbucks lovers. The coffee house holding an investor day tomorrow. Can the new CEO deliver on venti size expectations? We'll grind into the options pits for that trade. Plus, it has been a disastrous year for shares of Disney, but one activist investor turning into Prince Charming over the weekend. Will this turn around the stock? We'll bring you the details straight ahead. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Starbucks going flat ahead of tomorrow's Investor Day. But with a new CEO ready to come on board, one option trader is betting nearly $3 million that things are about to perk up. Oh, come on. Mike Coe has the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Yeah, so Starbucks traded more than three times the average daily call volume. And most of that activity was concentrated in the October 92 and a half calls, ultimately over 21,000 of those traded. But that included some big institutional prints, including a purchase of just under 12,000 for $2.35 a contract. The buyer of those calls is obviously betting that the stock can finish at least six and a half percent higher by October expiration. That would put it back into territory we haven't seen since early February. But I will make this point. Starbucks has typically outperformed the S&P around investor days historically. Looking back over the course of the last 15 years or so, it has outperformed the S&P by an average of about 1%. Tim, you're a shareholder. What do you think? Well, the, the, the outlook that they're going to give investor day in a couple of days is, is critical. In fact, in the last couple investor days, they've, they've outlined a long-term revenue target, and, and largely it's something that they've recast. If you look at their U.S. same-store sales, they're, they're actually extraordinary when you consider some of the issues that they've had, but the top line's not really the issue. I, as a shareholder and a long-term shareholder, I am worried about margins. I am worried about labor costs. They do seem to have diffused some of the labor issues that they uh, at least that began in Buffalo and have certainly worked their way around. Um, I think ultimately 
ultimately, their ability to have pricing power has been the key in this environment. And I just said at the commercial break to Mel it, yeah. that I, I'm incredulous. I believe I paid $4.30 for a drip coffee. I'm the last person on earth, by the way, that, that just gets a good old-fashioned coffee. And, and, and I'm, I'm paying it. I, I guess I'm the... I'm the so I, I don't know if you take that as they do have pricing power because you still paid I, that's what, what I effectively mean. sounds like price gouging to me for a drip coffee. Um, or if you think that they're just running to the end of it. And so if inflationary pressures keep up, they may not, might not be able to keep up with it um, in terms of prices. Guy, no doubt. what do you think? Well, I guess there's two issues here. Tim's willingness to pay $4.30 for a drip coffee and then the stock. Well, Tim likes he listen. Tim visits his local Starbucks. He's helping the local economy. I'm it's with true. him. I it's mean, true. I wouldn't be doing it, as you know. But that's, <laughs> it's not. Listen, it's not my thing. I'll say this: at 27 times, it's probably cheap historically to where it does trade, and they're doing this whole reinvention thing that I'm sort of interested in hearing. You know, Kate Rogers has been on this story for a while, and she tweeted something out. You know, they're doing something in this effectively the metaverse. I guess. I mean, the digital coins and all that nonsense that I don't understand. So. I give him the benefit of the doubt, and I think this stock probably can trade to the mid to upper 90s. Can you imagine going to the metaverse and having a virtual call? I mean, I don't, I don't understand the joy in that. I certainly wouldn't pay for that. Um, but anyway, Mike, thank you. Mike Co. for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, one activist investor calling for a timeout and changing his game plan on Disney, while he now says ESPN should remain on Disney's team. That pivot and play next. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Expedia. Catch the full exclusive interview top of the hour on a special Mad Money from the Seattle Space Needle. Sticking with the travel trade, let's talk Disney. Activist investor Dan Loeb doing an about face over the weekend. The hedge fund manager no longer calling for the entertainment giant to spin off its ESPN business. Let's get to CNBC's Julia Borson for more on the story. Julia. Well, Melissa, this is a win for Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He seems to be getting Dan Loeb on board for his vision for Disney. Chapek saying that he believes that ESPN is well-placed within Disney, and he has a plan to, quote, restore ESPN to its growth trajectory. Now, this is a rejection of Loeb's call for the company to spin off ESPN, part of a series of requests he made after he disclosed a $1 billion stake in the company in August. Now, Dan Loeb responding, he tweeted a link to Chapek's comments to the Financial Times, he wrote, quote, we have a better understanding of ESPN's potential as a standalone business and another vertical for Disney to reach a global audience to generate ad and subscriber revenues. We look forward to seeing Mr. Pitaro, that's ESPN's president, execute on the growth. Now, as for Loeb's proposal that Disney accelerate the timetable for buying the remaining stake in Hulu from Comcast, CNBC's parent company, Chapek telling Variety that it's possible and that they are considering folding Hulu more into Disney+. Plus. Of course, this all comes as the company announced investments to launch more movie-themed attractions at its parks and also to extend Pixar beyond just new movies. Pixar is going to have its first long-form series for Disney+. And Melissa Chapek, this is at D23, the big fan event. He seemed bullish and confident. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Guy Dami, what do you think of, uh, of the plan Mr. Chapek has laid out? I'd hold on to ESPN. I mean, I mean that, at least now ESPN is worse. You remember a few years ago, I mean, ESPN was an anchor. People say it's still an anchor. I know I disagree with Tom Rogers on this one. 
I think ESPN could actually be a driver going forward just in terms of where the world is going with gaming and gambling and all those different things. So I'm glad they're able to sort of keep that underneath the umbrella. And at 21 times-ish next year's numbers, I think Disney is probably historically at cheap level. So I like the name here. Tim, as a shareholder, how do you think about the increasing cost for sports rights, particularly when you have so many players now bidding for these same events and, and same sort of series? Well, I think that this is an environment where we really don't know what the leagues are going to be able to charge and what they're going to be able to push through. There are uh, an unbelievably... I would just say the biggest competitors in media in the world are going to be going after this. And we see this with Amazon. We see this with Apple coming into the same turf that used to be uh, ESPN's and Disney's alone. So that does concern me. But I, I agree with Guy. And I, I agree with the, the ability to actually have Disney uh, use ESPN as a way to sell these packages that are going to include Hulu and, and, and have a package that's going to be very tough not to have, in, you know, whether you've cut the cord or not. Yeah, actually, that, that's exactly the point I was going to say here is they're able to create these bundled services where a lot of their subscribers to your Disney Plus and Hulu are also getting that because they want your ESPN. And so they're going to start to get hooked on some of those platforms. So I think in the streaming wars, having your ESPN is actually going to be really helpful for Disney. Um, and I do really like their valuations. I think they're continuing to show their strength here, whether it's just streaming, it's with their parks um, and, uh, you know, kind of moving forward here. I actually really like Disney and I think it's a good thing to have. Karen, what do you think of the valuation? I think it's sort of okay. I know Guy talks about it's not, it doesn't seem like super rich valuation, but if we back out the linear, which should, linear TV, ABC, we should have, you know, that's going to be a much lower number, meaning the rest of it is much higher. And uh, for the streaming part, obviously valuations on those across the board, certainly not only Disney, have come in a lot. So I think the valuation is kind of high. Remember, they have a lot of debt. It's completely manageable, but from the Fox acquisition, so I'm, I'm kind of lukewarm on it. I don't hmm. own it. I was going to do a Would You Rather guy, but I don't want to box you in. This is your <laughs> last night on the show before you take off for a long, well-deserved vacation. So I will simply ask you this question, and that would be Disney or fill in the blank. Well, I mean, if you were playing the Would You Rather game, which, by the way, we started here on CNBC's Fast Money, 5 o'clock each night, if we make it to January, that would be 16 years, and <laughs> yeah. I said that yeah. for the last 16 years. But you would have said Netflix, Disney or Netflix. And at these levels, although historically my answer would be Netflix, playing the game correctly, uh, Disney, Melms. Okay. Speaking of the Mouse House, do not miss David Faber's exclusive interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek this Thursday from the Goldman Sachs Communicopia Conference. Hmm. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade, Guy. Neo, sister. Karen. Yeah, I liked uh, Moynihan's comments at the Barclays Global Conference, so Bank of America. And Guy, have a great vacation. You will be missed. Courtney. At Disney, we talked about this a bit, but I, I really like their strength here. I still think they trade cheaper than historically they have, and I think it's a great play. Tim. How about those G-men yesterday, Mel? Merck, as we get into the pharma biotech space, to me, again, valuation that makes sense. What does that mean? The Giants. Oh, they yeah, yeah, yeah. Football. Okay. NFL. Um, bon voyage, guy. Have a great trip. See you in a couple weeks. Meantime, we will see you all tomorrow. For more Fast, Mad Money starts right now. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.